Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. This episode is a very special live recording that I did in Foils, Charing Cross London bookshop with Jodie Picoult, the best-selling writer of 25 novels and counting. Her books have sold over 15 million copies worldwide and have been translated into almost 50 languages. In this episode, we discuss her newest book, A Spark of Light, which has just come out. It's just come out in America and has uh, topped the New York Times bestseller list and is out in the UK imminently. The book centres around women, choice and abortion rights in America. It unravels backwards with the first page in the kind of heat of the drama, with the characters all held hostage in an abortion centre in Mississippi. As the novel goes on, you start to realise what exactly brought all of the different characters there to the abortion centre. It is an incredible book and it has opened up so many conversations and this is really what this episode is discussing. So a little bit more about Jodie quickly. She is someone who writes fiction but at the heart of every novel is an important topic. Her first book to debut at number one on the New York Times bestseller list was 19 Minutes which was a novel about the aftermath of a school shooting in a small town. Her book Change of Heart, published in 2008, was her second novel to debut at the top of the charts and one of the books she's best known for is probably My Sister's Keeper, which was turned into a film starring Cameron Diaz. In her last book, Small Great Things, she tackles racism and white supremacy. She does not shy away from important topics and she's also very self-aware when it comes to being the author of said topics. In The Telegraph recently, she said, writing about racism was challenging. As a white woman, I wasn't sure whether I had the right to do so. I always do a lot of research and I did even more with Small Great Things. In 2016, Jodie joined the advisory board of VIDA Women in Literary Arts. It's a non-profit feminist organisation committed to creating transparency around the lack of gender parity in the literary landscape and is all about amplifying marginalised voices, including people of colour, writers with disabilities and trans and gender non-conforming individuals. She's someone who is an activist. I don't know if she calls herself an activist, but to me, she is someone who really cares about a lot of things and puts her weight behind it. So I hope you enjoy this episode. We talk a lot about her new book, A Spark of Light, and I think you will agree after you listen to this episode that she is an incredibly inspiring, articulate and very motivating person. Um, One last thing, actually, just wanted to say is that we had a bit of a technical hitch in foils, unfortunately, so the audio isn't as crisp as it normally is. I hope this doesn't put you off, and I hope you enjoy the episode nonetheless. Here it is. Coming to this very special live recording of my podcast, Control Up Delete, where I interview inspirational, incredible women who are creating works that will stay with the world forever. We don't have a lot of time, and we want to open out to audience Q and A in the second half. So I'm not going to spend too long introducing you, Jodie, because everyone here knows exactly <laughs> who you are, and you have written 25. This is your 25th best-selling book, so it's quite a lot to get through. So I'm going to skip that. 
but um, you all know her brilliant work. Um, the Washington Post recently called you Queen of Ethical Dilemma Fiction. How do you feel about that? It's not Queen of England, but I'll take it. <laughs> um, but it really you know, shows that your novels talk about important topics, and this one is no exception. So I'm just going to dive in with a very broad question yeah. to kick things off so that we can get in a bit deeper. But why did you write this book? A spark of light. So presumably, since uh, the books are over there, and I'm guessing most of you haven't finished them yet, um, the story is about the last reproductive rights clinic in Mississippi. In America, there are eight states that have only one remaining abortion clinic, and Mississippi is one of them. And I fictionalized that clinic, but the story is about a, a reproductive rights clinic, a fall day, a man comes in with a gun and a grudge, and he starts shooting. And he winds up uh, killing some patients, killing some employees, and taking the rest hostage, including the 15-year-old daughter of the hostage negotiator who is outside, who doesn't realize at first that his daughter is one of the hostages. Why did I write this book? When I was in college, I had a very good friend who got pregnant, unwanted pregnancy. She was seven weeks pregnant, and she and her boyfriend after many tearful nights, decided that they were going to terminate the pregnancy and have an abortion. I supported her 100%. Years later, I was pregnant with my third child. And I was seven weeks pregnant, and there was a complication. And my doctor told me that this pregnancy might not stick. And I was devastated, because to me, that was already a baby. And I wondered how I could hold both of those thoughts in my mind at the same time. I think that where we fall on the issue of reproductive rights isn't just determined by whether we consider ourselves pro-life or pro-choice, but it might change for an individual woman over the course of her own lifetime. Because what we believe at 15 is not what we believe at 30, and that's not what we believe at 50. The problem in America is that we legislate reproductive rights. Laws are black and white, but the lives of women are thousands of shades of gray. And ultimately, that was why I wanted to write this book right now. I love that quote. That's in the author's note, isn't it, in the book? And it just shows that um, it, it's a topic that you kind of need to see from all these different perspectives, and that's right. what you do in this book from right. all the characters. Mm -hmm. How did you stay so neutral as the storyteller? Um, you know, when I write a book, I don't want to ever tell you what to think, because I do often write about controversial issues. I have an opinion. I'm not shy in telling you my opinion, but my opinion should be no more important than what you believe. What I will ask you to do in one of my books is to hear what everyone has to say, what everyone, every point of view is different, and you may never have really listened to what the other side is thinking. I may not get you to change your mind, but I will ask you to question why your beliefs are what they are. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for this book, that required a great range of research in order to, to cover all of those different points of view. Yeah, because the character, um, Dr. Louis Ward, he's yes. based on Dr. Willie Parker, yes. who is a gynecologist. Yes, um, and an abortion provider, yes. And you did some really you know, intimate research with these people. How long did you spend with them? What sort of questions did you ask? How did you do it? So the research for this book started at a macro level and then winnowed down to a micro level. I actually started by looking at statistics. What are the abortion statistics in America? And um, basically, one out of four women will have an abortion over the course of her lifetime. 88% of those procedures happen in the first 12 weeks. Seven out of 10 women who have an abortion make less than 22,000 US dollars a year. 
And 75% of women who terminate a pregnancy say it's because they couldn't afford to keep that pregnancy. Then I began looking at laws. And I'm going to give you guys a little bit of an American civics lesson before I talk <laughs> about this. So perhaps you've heard of our federal law, Roe versus Wade. Perhaps you've heard a lot about it in the past few weeks, right? Well, Roe versus Wade was the law that, um, that gave women the right to an abortion. And it does stand at the federal level. And the reason that a lot of Americans have been very upset lately about the appointment of Just Justice Kavanaugh is because he is not a fan of choice and stands to overturn Roe versus Wade. Well, why is that even an issue? Because there have been 280 laws, more than that, passed at the state level to restrict rights to abortion. And what usually happens when a law is passed at the state level that restricts abortion is abortion clinics start closing, somebody sends the bill or the law to an appeals court, to another court, and eventually it makes its way all the way up to the Supreme Court, where Justice Kavanaugh now sits. And when it gets to the Supreme Court, if you're in a situation like Mississippi, where there's only one clinic left, they will always try to save that clinic because of a tiny little clause in Roe versus Wade that says undue burden. You cannot place undue burden on a woman if she wants to terminate a pregnancy. If they overturn Roe versus Wade, that's all out the window. That last clinic in Mississippi will close, as will the other eight states that only have one clinic. Many more in the Bible Belt and the Deep South will follow suit, and women basically will become at the mercy of their zip codes. Rich women will continue to be able to terminate pregnancies by crossing state lines. Poor women and predominantly women of color are going to be deeply affected, not just when it comes to abortion, but to basic women's reproductive health, because that is the bulk of what these clinics do. 97% of their work actually is gynecological care and STD testing and cancer screenings and contraception and has nothing to do with, with abortion. So. With that in mind, the second bit of research I did was looking at these laws. Some of the laws that have been passed on the state level, to give you an example of how they restrict abortion rights. In Texas in 2016, there was a law passed that said um, every uh, abortion clinic had to have a surgical suite attached to it for all the complications that can come with abortions. Very interesting because abortion is the safest, safest surgical procedure you can have. 0.3% of women have a complication from an abortion. Here are things that are more risky than abortions. Liposuction, colonoscopies, vasectomies, oh, and having a baby. Um, but of the 40 clinics in Texas, 20 of them couldn't afford to build a surgical center, and they closed. And by the time that law was overturned, those 20 clinics remained closed. In Indiana in 2016, Governor Mike Pence, who is now our vice president, signed a law that said a woman could not request an abortion for fetal abnormality. In the case that they wanted one, they would be counseled instead in something called in uterine hospice, which means letting the fetus die inside of you of natural causes and be expelled, at which point the fetus had to be either buried or cremated, even if the parents didn't want it. That was also eventually overturned, but interestingly, I read this just last night, it has escalated its way to the Supreme Court. It is the first abortion law that Kavanaugh will rule on. Um, in uh, Alabama in 2014, if you were a minor and you went to go to a judge to ask for a judicial waiver for an abortion, um, you would have had a seasoned lawyer appointed to speak out against you as the voice of your fetus. Imagine being a 13-year-old 
in court for the first time terrified and having a lawyer argue with you as the voice of your fetus. Um, there are still laws on the books in America that haven't been overturned yet that are just blatant lies, scientific untruths. But you know that was the research that I was learning from the legal level. Uh, as you can imagine, as I got quite hot under the collar, I then began to do the micro-research, which was getting in touch with people who were on the front lines, including this guy named Willie Parker. <laughs> Willie is an abortion provider and a devout Christian who says that he performs abortions not in spite of his religion, but because of it. One day, he was listening to a sermon. It was about the Good Samaritan, and he thought, who will take care of these women if not me? And he went out and got trained to do abortions, and now he flies to all the underserved areas in the Bible Belt and the Deep South performing abortions for women. He is the most ardent feminist I've ever met in my life. He sounds amazing. He's so cool. And um, Willie invited me to shadow him for a week. So I went down to Mississippi and Alabama, and I was encouraged to be in the rooms for three actual abortions. So I witnessed firsthand a five-week abortion, an eight-week abortion, and a 15-week abortion. And what I can tell you is um, that Willie is very, uh, he's very upfront about the fact that we need to not talk about abortion in terms of euphemisms. We have to be aware of what we're doing. Yes, you are interrupting a life process, even if you don't believe that you are killing a baby. And because of that, we still have to recognize there is a reason for a woman to have that choice. So he encouraged me to look at the products of conception. And what I can tell you is that in the five-week abortion and the eight-week abortion, the procedure took um, less than three minutes. Mixed in among the products of conception, it basically looked like when you blow your nose in a tissue and then peek inside. Nothing that's going to give you any pause. The 15-week abortion was a little different. It took seven minutes, and mixed among the mucus and the products of conception were things that were very, very, very tiny and very, very, very human. A little hand, an elbow. Something that was, you know, definitely gave me pause. But when I spoke to the woman who had terminated that pregnancy, she told me that she had three children at home under the age of four that she could barely afford to feed. And if she had another baby, she knew she would not be able to feed them. So does that make her a really bad mother or a really good mother? After I spoke with Willie, I then went to the other side and I began to talk to people who identify as pro-life because I had to get that point of view in as well. And I have to say that I went there with misconceptions. I went there believing Oh, these people are going to be religious zealots. I'm going to have nothing in common with them. In fact, they were lovely and smart and funny. I absolutely would have been friends with these people. We just disagreed on one very particular claim, which is at what point does life begin? And they really, they really truly believe life begins at conception, and they don't know how to move past that. Um, they don't want to be seen as anti-woman any more than someone pro-choice wants to hear, oh, women use, use abortion as contraception. That's not true either. Um, and then finally, I interviewed 151 women who have terminated pregnancies. Of those 151, one of them regretted it. Of those 151, all of them thought about it daily. And Emma, this is the part that just broke my heart. Of those 151, less than 25 wanted to be acknowledged in my book. And they wanted to use a pseudonym, an initial, the word anonymous, because even after decades, they have not told their parents, their children, their siblings, their friends, that they terminated a pregnancy. They are living under an umbrella of stigma. And especially with what has been happening in America, listening to Dr. Christine Blasey Ford talking about being a survivor of sexual assault, 
Um, there are a lot of parallels between women who have terminated pregnancies and women who are survivors of sexual assault. When women don't tell their stories, narratives are written for us, and they are narratives of blame and shame. Um, they are narratives that say, this is your fault, you knew better, you could have prevented this. And I've been doing a little experiment while I'm on the road, and I hope you'll all indulge me. I would like you to raise your hand if you know anyone who is a survivor of sexual assault or of an attempted sexual assault. Could you raise your hand? Okay, so look around. Now I'd like you to, you put your hands down. Now I'd like you to do the same if you know somebody who has terminated a pregnancy. Look around. Where are those stories? Why don't people talk about it? They are always a hushed conversation. Exactly. Always. And it's because of a stigma. It's because of the belief that this is the benchmark a woman needs to measure the rest of her life by instead of just another moment in a long series of moments. Mm -hmm. And I really think it's important that we recognize that, that someone has taken that story away from women, and we need to work hard to change that. I asked Jodie in the green room whether she kind of considers her writing activism, because I think it's 100% activism, and you were saying that it's also education. Yeah. There were so many points in the book that I kind of underlined, and, and I actually, you know, I didn't know so much. There's a bit, I think it's Dr. Louis Ward says, waiting, the waiting period to get an abortion was longer than the waiting period to get a gun in America. I mean... Related, do you guys have room for me here? Just asking, I might be moving. Yes. It's true, it's, it is, it's very, very sad. And there's a lot of stuff that, there are so many things that I learned when I was writing this book, um, you know, that even I didn't know. I alluded to this before, but you've probably heard um, conservatives in America chanting, defund Planned Parenthood. And the reason they're doing it, of course, is because they want to stop abortions. But 97% of the work that Planned Parenthood does has nothing to do with abortion. It's covered by federal funds, and it involves, like I said, gynecological care and contraception and cancer screenings and STD screenings and even healthcare for men, as a matter of fact. 3% um, of what Planned Parenthood does are abortions. And if you go to get an abortion at a Planned Parenthood, you pay for it. It is not covered by federal funds. So if we defund Planned Parenthood like these people wish, literally the only thing they'll be able to do are abortions, which I'm pretty sure is not what they're looking for. Wow, the but, irony. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's inspiring as well about this book is you are seeing things from all sides. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much in daily life we do look at all sides mm -hmm. anymore, especially the internet being so polarizing, mm -hmm. the fact that you are right or you are wrong. If you mm -hmm. say the wrong thing, you're cancelled and your career is over. Whereas, actually, I was reading this book, and, and like you, you were saying, when you met people who were pro-life, for example, mm -hmm. some of their arguments are quite compelling. And yeah. you actually think, well, you're allowed to think what you like. We might not agree, but I understand you now. Right, and it's also, you know, from the same, the same tactic, looking at it through the same lens, a woman who chooses to terminate a pregnancy is allowed to feel grief. And people don't understand that, but that's how complex an issue this is. You may be the one making that choice, but it can still hurt. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that was kind of what I really wanted to get across here, that th there is no easy answer for anyone. And, you know, no one wants an abortion, not even the women who have them. This is truly the end of the rope. 
I'm sorry if you've been asked this a hundred times, but I really wanted to ask you, you know, can fiction tell more of the truth? Yes. Because if you've interviewed 150 women, mm -hmm. it could have been an anonymous non-fiction. Right. And that's obviously not, not something... Right. You, you are the perfect person to do this, but why fiction? I Well, first of all, I, I'm paralyzed by non-fiction, which is so funny, because I feel like there's a grace in fiction. If I do make something up, I'm not... You know, I'm not ruining someone's life. I'm not being dishonorable. Um, I would feel very confined if I could only write nonfiction. What I love about fiction is that it is the most insidious way to change someone's mind. Because you pick up a book thinking, this is going to be a great read. I'm going to lose the next three days of my life. And, and I will tell you, A Spark of Light functions quite well as a page turner. But... If you finish the book and are left thinking about these big issues and these characters, I have done something else. I have gotten you to think about an issue you would probably never really want to just have a chat with someone over lunch about. You know, and I love that about fiction. It is a, a very sneaky way to get someone to think about a very difficult issue. That is so true because you might not take a nonfiction book about abortion like on a trip or to a friend's house or, you know, you, you it sneaks right. into your bag much more easily. Right. And I mean, I read multiple Guttmacher studies about reproductive rights statistics. I'm guessing most of you do have, just don't do that on a daily basis. But the information that I learned, I can filter through the voices and thoughts of my characters. So you are getting the same information that I learned. Do you mind if I ask you about you know, the fact that it's written backwards. I know we're not going to yeah. do any spoilers, but yeah. did, did you write it literally from that moment or did you write it and then flip it? So the book is written in reverse, which means that you see the standoff between the gunman and the hostage negotiator in the first chapter. From the first page. Yeah, you're just I'm not giving in. anything away. Yeah. And then every chapter goes back in time one hour. So what you learn at the end is what brought all these very diverse individuals to this clinic on this particular day. So when I write a book, usually I write like a three-page outline and I know my twist because I want to leave a paper trail for you so that you can find it after you, you, know, you get the big aha moment. For this book, I had a 48-page outline because it was so complicated working in reverse and working with 10 different narrative threads. Um, I wrote it exactly in the order that you read it, but I, I did that very specifically by outline. <coughs> For me, the really interesting part was editing it. I made my husband go out and get me those tiny little um, colored post-it flags, and I flagged every character's section uh, as I went through the book. So it looked like confetti. It was so beautiful. And then um, when I edited the book, I edited in reverse 10 times following each individual character's story, and then I edited the whole thing going forward. I will never do this again. <laughs> it was really, really hard. But it, it was the right, the right device for this book because to me this is a book about conception. And not just where does life begin, but how do we conceive our ideas? How do we come to believe the things that we believe? And that is, for that you have to start at the very beginning. Have you learned anything new from the book tour, from talking to other people? Is there anything that you've learned from the conversations that have come from the book that you didn't already know? Um, it's been a really interesting book tour. So I've been, I've been off in America for about 35 days, and um, I have had hate mail. Love those. Um, I have, this is my favorite piece of hate mail. I'm going to share it with you. I woke up to it one morning. It was a man named 
Hank from Cleveland. And Hank said to me, what's also really interesting is, I have to give you the background on this, um, Politico is a, it's like a progressive newsletter and podcast. Oh, I've heard, right? that, I've heard yeah. of it. So it's definitely a left-wing kind of podcast, and I was on it being interviewed about this book. So this, remember, this man had been listening to this left-wing podcast, and he writes, I heard where you said, Justice Kavanaugh should read your book so he'll change his mind about abortion. Well, that's not going to happen because he's a devout Catholic, and this is none of your business, so you should take your ridiculous curls and just shut up. <laughs> and I was like, I actually woke up to this one morning. I burst out laughing, and I wrote him back, and I said, I'm guessing you haven't read my book either. Uh, this actually is my business, and I quite like my curls. <laughs> and, and then he wrote back and said, why would I read the book of someone who looks like six-year-old Shirley Temple? <laughs> That's kind of a compliment, though. I, I don't know what he was going after. Of course I googled him. Of course he is a white man between the age of 70 and 75. Um, but uh, basically, that was, that was funny. But then I did have a lot of really offensive stuff on my Twitter account, which I'm used to because I, I wrote a book about racism last time, so hey, been there, done that. Um, you know, and you can block all those people, and that's quite nice. The thing that's really gotten to me about this book are the people who are reaching out to me, um, the women, mostly. So I had a woman who heard me do an interview with the CBC in Canada and wrote me and said, I've never, I've never read your books. I heard you on the CBC. I had an abortion when I was 18. Uh, like 30 years ago, and um, I'm wondering if I could tell you about it. So I said, absolutely, and she wrote me her whole story, and I wrote her back saying, well, you know, I heard a lot of these same issues from women I, I interviewed, and here's what I know, and she wrote me back and said, thank you, today I hate myself a little less. Mm -hmm. And then I had another young woman who heard me speak in Boston about this, and then wrote me three weeks later and said, I just found out that I'm pregnant with an unwanted pregnancy. Could I please talk to you about this so you can help me make a decision? And I did. I went back and forth with her for about seven emails, um, and she finally decided that she wanted to terminate the pregnancy and, and has had an appointment at Planned Parenthood. Wow. And so, you know, the fact that, that this book is opening up that conversation is great. I also have had so many women come up to me at the end of an event and say, uh, I, I had an abortion, I'm going to tell my daughter on the way home, mm. I'm going to tell my friends today, which I think is great. Yeah, and that collective kind of safe space, some, mm. you know, even when everyone raised their hands, obviously we're, we're raising our hands about something that's not great, but the fact that so many of us have had that shared experience, even right. if it's a friend or us, you immediately feel less shame. Well, that's exactly it. You have to recognize that stigma is something that the media and society create for you. And it's meant to make you feel like this experience happened to you in a vacuum. But it didn't, and it doesn't. You know, if one out of three women are experiencing an attempted sexual assault, and one out of four women are terminating a pregnancy, do the math, even in this room. There are a lot of people here in solidarity. And, and I really think we need to remember that, that we are not alone, that we, we have to stand up for each other. Definitely. Um, well, this is going really quickly. I think I've only got time really for one last question. Um, and then if you have a question, please start thinking about it now because, um, you know, we're in, a, we're in the room with Jodie Pickle. This is not going to happen again. Well, it might. Hopefully it will. Um, 
Where do you think America will go from here? And I'm sorry, that's another broad question. No, it's a good one, because it's a really, really important one. What I can tell you is, having done all this work, we are never going to agree in America um, about abortion rights. There are people who are always going to be pro-life and people who are always going to be pro-choice. Okay, so knowing that, how do we move forward? I think there are two things that we have to get like place on the table as givens. One is, as I said, even women who have abortions don't want to have abortions. And two, let's pretend that Roe versus Wade is off the table. At least for today, let's say it's safe. But I don't want to talk about that. With that, how do we reduce the abortion rate? Because it should be in everyone's best interest to have fewer abortions. Well, what's the easiest way? Contraception, right? So the real problem in America is that the people who are most ardently pro-life are also most vocally anti-contraception. And that, to me, is fascinating. You know, in America, the teen birth rate is 13 per thousand. In Canada, it's 6 per thousand. In Sweden and France, it's 7 per thousand. The only difference between our country and those other countries are free and accessible birth control and wide, widespread sex ed. And the thing, too, about these opponents to birth control, if you are pro-life and you tell me that you're pro-life because... You're protecting the unborn. This is about a baby for you. I may not agree with you, but at least I can understand where you're coming from. Contraception has nothing to do with the unborn. Contraception is purely about controlling women's sexuality. That is a real problem. And that's something that we need to talk about more. Because that's an issue that, that should be addressed. No one should be allowed to do that in this day and age. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I think we do need to talk about laws but not Roe versus Wade. If we know that 75% of women are having abortions because they can't afford to raise a child, there are many laws in America that could make a more equitable choice for women, such as raising the minimum wage, such as universal health care that covers not just maternity care, but the life of your child, such as federally funded daycare or penalizing companies that won't promote women because they keep leaving the workforce to have all of these babies. Those are all really excellent laws that nobody ever talks about. The third thing we need to do is look at men. In America, in case it isn't clear, we live in a patriarchy. And that means that women can scream into the void, but we are not being heard. Men, however, are given a microphone and everybody listens. So we need our male allies, we need fathers and husbands and sons and brothers to step up to that microphone that always is handed to them and go, are you listening, are you listening? Great. And then pass that microphone to a woman whose voice is not being heard. Make sure people understand that women's rights are universal rights and that men have a stake in this too. I think we have to reach across the aisle and we need to talk to people who think differently than we do. In America, we are quite bad at that, particularly right now. But here's the catch. Instead of judging someone and instead of talking at them, you have to just sit back and listen. Hear what they have to say and hope that they will give you the grace to do the same thing when they are done talking. And finally, if you are a woman who has had an abortion, I have not, but if I had, I hope I would be strong enough courageous enough to tell my story to somebody else because that is the way we begin to take back our narrative that is the way we normalize this as something that happens and we stop living in a culture of shame about it uh, and if if you are one of those women I hope you will be brave enough to consider that because if you are you might encourage another woman to do the same 